Hello. In episode 35, season 2 of AS for Architecture, I spoke with Charles Holland, once of FAT, and now principal of Charles Holland Architects, and freshly minted professor at the University of the Creative Arts Canterbury, about his design, research and writing, including his 2022 Davidson Prize winning proposal, co-living in the countryside, developed in collaboration with the artist Verity Jane Keefe, and designer and urbanist Joseph Seal Henry. What we developed was an idea of a sort of rental self-build or rental community build model and that therefore you'd have sort of long-term investment and long-term security in your rental model. You could adapt and change your house. It was run by, you know, a, a trust that's part of a housing association that works with the local authority that initially owns the land. And so that's sort of the two things really, the idea of how the housing could, could be quite simple but allow huge diversity of expression and then how that might actually enable people to live in it over time sort of work, work together. So in that sense, the stylistic eclecticism and an idea of a relationship between the sort of collective and the individual were the two really important kind of parts of that scheme. As for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space. Hello and welcome to another episode of As for Architecture. I'm talking today to Charles Holland, Professor Charles Holland, architect and professor of architecture at University of the Creative Arts in Canterbury. Uh, Charles, that's a short intro. Would you like to embellish that? Um, yes, hi, everybody. Yes, I can a little bit. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm an architect, uh, a teacher and a writer. I run a practice called Charles Holland Architects, which I've been running since 2016. And before that, I was a director of um, FAT Architecture for some 20 years. Um, alongside that, I've always taught. I was a professor of architecture at the University of Brighton prior to um, my current appointment at UCA Canterbury. Uh, and I've taught at lots of other places. I've taught at um, the Royal College of Art, um, University of Greenwich. I've taught at the ABK in Stuttgart and also um, Fat Runner Studio for a number of semesters at um, Yale School of Architecture in the US. Um, and I write a bit two um about buildings and about design and architecture reviews and and i used to run back in the days when people did such things i wrote a blog um called fantastic journal that's a pretty good introduction and a busy man um so but you're based down in dover now which i think is kind of it's it's sort of surprising i suppose because when one encounters critically acclaimed and Movers and shakers in the world of architecture, you expect them to be in big, massive cities, um, by and large, but you're not. How do you find yourself in Dover? Well, I, I moved out of London in uh, 2015, 16, um, when I started my new practice. And um, I had been living in London basically since I left home and studied architecture and then um, formed uh or became one of the directors of fat so i've been based out um all that time and when fat came to an end and the, the last project that i worked on as part of fat which is a house for essex finished which was a sort of year and a half or two years after fat kind of ceased working together formally um i guess i was faced with a bit of a dilemma as to what to do next um quite a a, a happy dilemma in a way like i was interested and excited about what to do next 
Um, I was pretty sure I wanted to um, start some kind of new practice, but what I didn't want to do is start a new practice in the same way and in the same place. Um, and um, uh, I was given an opportunity, I suppose, to sort of rethink where, I, where I'd be. Uh, and um, so I moved, my, my family and I moved, we moved to Deal on the Kent coast. Um, and that felt like a bit of a sort of new adventure, new start. And um, slowly sort of formed a new practice. I chose Dover because Dover's a very interesting place. Um, and um, Deal's very pleasant. <laughs> Um, and got a very interesting and rich history too. But Dover is a place at a kind of, uh, perhaps architecturally at a more interesting place right now. Um, it's, you know, it's a kind of industrial port town. Uh, it suffers from quite a lot of social deprivation. Um, it's got this incredible kind of architectural history and topography. Um, there are things afoot in Dover and a chance to maybe do work in this area that seems quite interesting and important. Um, I think some of my interests had slightly shifted from, from the kind of urban and the, the city. Um, and I've become very interested in kind of non-urban situations for architecture, which I think partly stems from um, a sense that not that many people are looking at that. Um, and that consequently, certainly in the field of housing, we'll probably come back to that, um, all of the kind of quality and the thinking and the sort of effort has been on sort of cities and big cities. Um, and so I was interested or had a growing interest in looking at places that were outside of that um, and Dover having specific kind of challenges and interests. Um, and so I live in Deal, but I base my um, office in Dover, and we're in Castle Street, which is a sort of fairly well-preserved Georgian street in um, an otherwise not particularly well-preserved um, town. Uh, and so uh, we've got a view of the castle at one end and, uh, and uh, Market Square in the centre of Dover at the other. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing town. It's an amazing topography. Kent is, I mean, I live just north of you, um, most of the time and and yeah it's a it's a it's an extraordinary place but i really like this idea of kind of shifting and i think this is when when i contacted you i suggested some themes which were just sort of sh shots in the dark really and you came back and you asked and you and you you suggested that you wanted to speak about these ideas of the rural as a kind of counterpoint uh for architecture to to, to the city and i was wondering if perhaps there was like what I I suppose in a kind of simple way, what have you found about this? So so the post-industrial con condition, and obviously Dover is um, partly that, but there's a lot of Kent coastline that is that. What have you found specific about the context of Dover that that is, um, uh, and and the rural kind of uh, spaces around it that that requires. A, a new architecture, I suppose, or or a different form of architecture or a different approach to architecture? Well, I think there's probably two different things there. One is one is the rural and one is perhaps Dover. They're not as important probably to state that they're, they're not, not the same. Um, in terms of the rural, that's a kind of uh, a, a sort of emerging interest, I guess, for me over um, a number of years. 
um, where in the studios I've been teaching previously at Brighton and now UCA, where we've looked at um, quite sensitive rural locations, particularly in relation to new housing. And um, I'm very interested in the fact that, you know, essentially new housing in non-metropolitan centres is delivered more or less the same way everywhere. Um, that is to say it's done by developers, usually the big um, the big PLCs, but sometimes slightly smaller local ones who sort of follow the same pattern. Um, we're normally talking about one or two sort of fields on the edge of the settlement, town, village, um, you know, a spine road that goes through the middle of it, um, and then a series of kind of mostly detached houses that dot around that. And, you know, there might be some vague genuflection towards the idea of the sort of local vernacular, more or less, might be slightly more or less expensive materials, but essentially the model's the same. Um, and it seems that we've really, I guess as a society, sort of just abandoned the idea of architecture having anything to say about those places and any influence over them. Those developers generally might use, a, might use an architect usually to unlock, you know, planning value but that architect will be incredibly limited in the scope of what they can suggest or, mm. or do um it's entirely run by sort of market economics and um by marketing essentially what what's deemed sellable um planning will sort of tweak around the edges trying to say maybe you should do a little bit here or a little bit there to kind of change the formula but essentially we've just sort of abandoned the idea that we're making anything at all um deliberately it's kind of what comes out if you feed all these things in one end, out the end you get these. And I'm not necessarily saying they're terrible, I guess, so much as um, it seems important that we might at least have a discussion about whether this is how we want to live <laughs> and how we want to make places. And at the moment, no one is designing them really in any kind of sense that we might understand design, i.e. having some sort of overall sense of what those houses are about, how people live together, what kind of you know, density we want to live in, what kind of accommodation we want to live in, how we might want to pay for that. None of those things are kind of happening. They've been left essentially to a kind of uh, really denuded uh, sense of the market. Um, so I've become very kind of exercised about that and looking at alternative ways that can be done and what, you know, how we might make new bits of um, kind of, you know, new villages essentially, um, and I think changes in technology and changes in lifestyle have made those things more relevant rather than less. Um, maybe like half a century ago, you'd say that's probably not where we should be looking. But now I actually think um, uh, it is, at least partly, and very few people seem to be looking at it. So that's one thing. Um, and, so, in way, know, so in a way, the architect has to become... The architect has to become involved, unlike the urban architect, the, the 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 regional or rural architect has to become involved at a much earlier stage in kind of starting to leverage their knowledge and their capacity to present totally different visions of what it is. I mean, because I, I suppose in the city, you get these tight little spaces and the architect is given a site and they're told they need to cram as much on as possible. Whereas in the countryside, it's like, we've got lots of space. So let's just, so, so like, what, like how do you operate as an architect in that space? I mean, well, yeah, I think that's interesting. I mean, I think other things are happening in the city too. I mean, partly just the amount of interest, partly the way that, you know, government, local government works in cities, um, the kind of attention paid to 
Um, you know, things like I mean, one looks at London, one would look at kind of like London Housing Guide, one would look at the work of GLA, like a huge amount of effort and a huge amount of attention has gone into what is contemporary kind of housing in London. And of course, it's still very circumscribed by kind of commercial issues, uh, land values principally, and therefore the density of housing. But, you know, um, there's an awful lot of good housing produced out of those constraints. Um, my, one might want it to be less dense, one might want, um, you know, the values to be vastly less inflated. But in terms of the quality of the architecture, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of that. And I think we all know what we mean by that. Um, you know, and the Sterling Prize each year, there'll be one or two, you know, kind of qu- high quality housing schemes that will pop up. You will not probably find very many rural housing schemes popping up. Um, in a rural situation, it's different. Um, and I think you're right. In some senses, um, I guess there's a question of the agency of the architect and what the architect is trying to do. Um, I mean, I'm an old fashioned democratic socialist, so I would like um, local authorities to be empowered. Uh, and funded to build housing and uh, you know that that to me would be the most profound way that one could tackle the kind of housing crisis in rural areas but i'm also very interested in other ways it can happen um and as someone who's a you know fan of the writing of colin ward and other people um looking at kind of history of experimental um communal uh self-built custom-built other forms of uh, of interesting kind of housing delivery um yeah i'm i'm very uh you know i think there's a lot of stuff in there that's interesting and in that sense architects do take on slightly different roles you know they take on roles of enablers and um uh uh you know providing i suppose sorts of technical skills and knowledge to maybe enable communities to do new set- new settlements and new housing Mm. Um, so there is scope, I think, for kind of expanded and different roles for the architect. Um, but I don't think that's the only answer. And I think as much as I'm interested in, um, you know, alternative delivery models of housing, I think in terms of how we um, envisage and form new settlements, I think that's a kind of collective endeavour. Mm. The a city like a town like Dover really, to me, seems on on a kind of very, I suppose, rather superficial level, seems to find its logic as a dependency or an extension of the urban. So Dover is the port through which the commerce of London is instrumentalized, delivered, whatever. And so its architecture. The, the, the massive infrastructure that characterizes a place like Dover and 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 also now more pertinently the well perhaps equally pertinently the the migrant crisis that comes in through that are really kind of logics of urban centers or metropolitan logics and I wonder whether there is a sense and and you see this all over the place I had a, a student um, a year and a half ago called Mark Thompson who wrote about this idea having moved from London and from Edinburgh moving down into rural Kent and looking at the way that the logics of the urban permeate the rural and to the extent that you rarely get something that is genuinely rural anymore you get essentially a suburban pastiche which does 
more or less an urban thing. I mean, do you find in a place like Dover a kind of an, a problem in that they they're always these peripheral or regional places are always essentially trying to replicate metropolitan languages, metropolitan aesthetics, metropolitan kind of economic logics as well. Um, well, I, I think the important thing there is that they're part of those logics for sure. And so, you know, the rural is interesting because it, you know, it's presented or, or, or normally framed very obviously as the opposite of, of the urban and implicit in that as an idea that's also the opposite of kind of contemporary or modern like modernism and urbanism are sort of bound up together. And the countryside of the world, particularly in the UK, which has, you know, very uh, complex and um, quite profoundly strange attitudes to to the rural, very intensely sentimental. Um, there's an idea that it's pitched as, you know, as, as the opposite of, of the urban, and uh, therefore it doesn't have any of the problems of urbanization. It doesn't, it, it's a sort of sanctuary or a kind of, you know, bucolic escape. But of course, that's nonsense. You know, that the modernism exists in rural places and, and rural places are connected um, to all of the um, systems, the mechanisms mm -hmm. um, of contemporary life, logistics, transportation, uh, digital technology, communication, um, people uh, in the countryside, weirdly, they work. <laughs> um, you know, there might be, um, you know, there are businesses, there are activities, there is kind of agri, you know, agriculture, which is kind of a, a vast business itself. You know, there's, you know, there's no real sense that there's, um, you know, some kind of anti-urban, really. Um, so that interests me as well, a kind of idea that these things exist within within the rural it's a much more complex and kind of contradictory place uh, than i guess popular mythology or popular culture research mm -hmm. um so i think that that's one thing in terms of dover i think i think you're right i mean dover historically is is a place that's completely formed by you know its position um internationally and as a place that has always uh, had an incredibly important um mercantile and defensive kind of role um and it still is so you know vast amounts of goods coming in and out of dover um it's an incredibly uh successful commercially so poor um and it dominates the town in a lot of ways but equally dominant in the town is you know a kind of overwhelming sort of nostalgia for a perceived um more glorious past it's really it's really so i remember oh uh, you know we look on this facebook uh, page called Dover History Pages, which is run by this guy, and he unearths and posts about you know really incredible stuff. And uh, there's a kind of um, really standard response, overwhelming standard response to any photo he posts, which is kind of over age of ten years, which will be oh isn't that, wasn't Dover good then? <laughs> you know it doesn't matter what he said, said, put a picture of. It might be like you know. Might be a sort of building of a dual carriageway in the 1960s, but there's a sort of sense that that was a better dual carriageway than the one we have now. And he posted a sort of aerial photo of, um, you know, sort of Victorian, I guess Edwardian or um, early 20th century Dover and a map. And um, everyone said that was you know, so much better around the, the port area in those days. And um, it, the thing is, it wasn't. <laughs> 
Uh, and it really obviously wasn't. I mean, there were slums. It was about, it's always been quite a poor town, um, you know, subject to, um, you know, kind of constant influx of, of people that made it always uh, quite an edgy place as well. Um, uh, and a, a very volatile sort of place. But the persist the kind of sense that there's a, some strange, uh, glorious moment in it in its past, or multiple glorious moments. So it, you know, it's a place that embodies lots of, I guess, the sort of national psychosis in a way you could see that we're living through at the moment. You know, it's a sort of Brexit front line. It embodies all of these weird, contradictory um, impulses that exist in the UK now, which are you know deeply nostalgic, extremely. Um, troubled by a kind of contemporary position in the world, um, quite threatened by a lot of things, um, trading on past glories um, with, you know, moments of extraordinary kind of history and sort of, you know, beauty occasionally. Um, so it's, it's really fascinating for that reason. Um, mm-hmm. And as you say, it, it, it's a completely, it's, a place that's simultaneously hugely sentimental and completely unsentimental. So unsentimental bit is the port, which just ploughs on, developing, growing, churning stuff through it with completely zero sentiment. <laughs> I, I took part in a, a recent um, panel discussion about David, and you know, I talk, I was chairing it, and I talked to um, a prominent member of the Port of Dover board, and I said, you know, do you feel a kind of sense of responsibility? this amazing kind of topography and history and there's the castle and there's the Western Heights and blah, blah, blah. blah. And he said, well, did anyone ever, when they were developing Dover Harbour down the centuries, did they feel that sense of historical responsibility? No, they didn't. They just made what they had to make at the time. And he's right, you know, when the in the early 19th century, when they're digging enormous fortifications into the cliff face, they weren't thinking about Dover as a historical entity, mm. they were they were making huge infrastructural interventions into the landscape. So I think that is super interesting about it. And then, of course, is its proximity to you know the countryside around it, which is which is quite extreme in the case of Dover, and it's surrounded largely, almost completely, by an area of outstanding natural beauty. So uh, you get this very extreme. Um, disconnect between the two. So I think it's a super interesting place. And the third thing I'd say I think that's quite um that's quite compelling about it is unlike a lot of seaside towns where the model of regeneration um is kind of arts led and you know we're familiar with the town of contemporary Margate and the Towner Gallery in Eastbourne and um Folkestone Triennale and stuff like that, just to choose ones on this particular stretch of coastline. Um, Dover isn't like that. Dover is like a working place in that sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's dominant, you know, it has a one hugely successful industry. It might question how many people that employs, and it's lost industries too. But um, uh, that makes it significantly different to a lot of places which historically traded on tourism um, and sort of seaside activities that weren't. Um, big commercial operations like this one. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a, a super interesting place. Yeah, for sure. It is, I mean, yeah, that, that word infrastructure is kind of kind of key, isn't it? It's almost like a settlement of infrastructure that housing sort of adheres to, um, comes and goes from. 
And you see other cities like that. I mean, Birmingham has become a bit like that, but you see other, it certainly is very true of coastal places throughout um, th throughout the southeast of England, as I've encountered it so far. I when we wrote you you raised this issue of style and i was thinking how do i how do i move from talking about the rural to issues of style and i would kind of i called alan powers last night and i asked him cuz he he thinks about style a lot and you used to teach alongside him at greenwich and i asked him what is style and uh, he had lots of answers and they were all very good um but i didn't have a pen and paper with me and I got a memory like a sieve. So I'll, I'll go on a sense, a sense meaning rather than an absolute rep, rep, uh, replication but, um, of what he said. But I was wondering whether you think that this kind of, so in places like Dover, where you have no overarching design language, it's really a design language of utility. Um, but also in, in, in relation to this issue you mentioned earlier, which is that the unbelievable um, pouring out of suburbanization and, you know, it's perhaps a little bit checked by the area of outstanding natural beauty down around Dover and, and Deal and so on. But if you go up to, North, you know, Margate and Westwards, they're just vomiting this stuff all the way through Faversham, whether it's the Prince slash King or whether it's, you know, um, uh, I saw another site yesterday. I found another site yesterday. Red Row are going to go and throw down another load of housing. There's obviously this line between Margate and Canterbury, which is just filling up with pointless stuff and there's and it is kind of pointless um i've said that mentioned this before on the podcast when i spoke with flora samuel she's she's encountered new build housing which has a which has a lifespan of an intended lifespan of seven years seven years you can, how can you get a mortgage on something with seven I, I don't understand anyway um but i wonder whether that 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 this problem this anonymizing problem that we've got particularly with the the way that the rural is being consumed um, by by, by um, volume house builders and and by planning policies which preferences them and a whole a whole system of governance which preferences this very cheap building, um, aesthetic and 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 um, anti anti everything really. Um, I, is is the answer style and 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 I suppose this comes back to your work with fat. Is the answer starting to think about? the language of architecture, the way that we style architecture. Is this a good enough answer? Is this going to resolve the issue? Um, short answer, no. <laughs> um, and I think to some extent that, uh, certainly within the, the Johnson administration, um, there was a sense that beauty was the answer, wasn't there? And mm. the building better, the building beautiful commission mm. and the white paper that, um, that came out of that was that, um, I guess, resistance to this stuff or this new uh, new housing developments would be considerably less lessened if beauty were brought into the equation. I mean, obviously, the definitions of beauty are fairly terrible, uh, thin gruel in those kinds of discussions. Um, and... The idea that and and the and the sort of answers offered are obviously painfully 
wrong-headed so you'll see someone like uh you know government ministers talking about how you know return to sort of georgian building would would bring back a sense of place and and local difference and you go where there's anything you could say about georgian architecture it's a roads difference and place like it's the same everywhere that was what that's what people like about it right i mean the georgians didn't give a fuck about regional conditions um uh, and so, you know, that's obviously deeply wrong-headed. Um, I, I don't think, as much as I'm interested in style, I am very, very, very interested in style. I want to talk about that for sure. I don't think that's the the, the problem here, actually. And I think, in some senses, this uh, this comes to a head and a slight contradiction in my sort of interest, or not a contradiction, but sort of two different kinds of areas of interest in a way. Um, I think the answer to housing problems are almost inevitably strategic um, and policy-driven, really. I think on a fundamental level, that's how we address uh, and that's how we should address housing issues. And the reason that we have the housing we have at the moment is through a complete void in terms of um, policy direction. Um, what what we have is what happens when you don't have one. Um, and when you have, um, I guess governments that successive um governments conservative governments in particular um who are one very beholden to a, a powerful house building lobby uh and two um essentially beholden to you know a, a free market ideology which means that they are unable <laughs> to consider how policy could change something because they don't believe that policy is the answer so therefore that's not possible to make them um, the only policies they do is to have less policy, um, i.e. deregulation. So part of that white paper was to try to deregulate the planning legislation that already exists. I don't think that's the answer either. Um, I am very interested in ideas of, of expression and stylistic freedom. Um, and therefore, you know, I would I would welcome um a, a kind of idea that planning legislation could start to be um able to deal with that either you know people could have a more freedom of expression within within sort of structures of where you know well where, where building occurs um i'm not interested in sort of particularly imposing a kind of stylistic or uh taste culture on on people Mm. Um, quite the opposite. I'm, I'm interested in complete stylistic freedom, really. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a second. But I am, you know, but I, and maybe we're going to talk about the Davidson Prize in a little bit, but that was yeah. a project that we did, which really explored a kind of, as much as anything, explored an idea of how you might have a kind of governance structure, which negotiated levels of individual freedom against ideas of sort of civic and communal responsibility. And I think those are very important within within housing, maybe we'll come back to that. In terms of your question about style, though, I am super interested. It's interesting you mentioned Alan Powers, because um, Alan does talk, I think, very interestingly about style. Um, one of the things I think that came out of, for me personally, out of the period of, of you know, working at FAT and um, a kind of period, I suppose, of, of sort of consistently kind of prodding the, the edges of what is stylistically acceptable within architecture with a sense that I you know I just don't really subscribe to any kind of ideas of what you can or can't do stylistically <laughs> mm -hmm. and I find that um you know that idea that 
that there's you know some sort of ethical dimension to sort of aesthetic stylistic issues um i find kind of deeply bizarre in a way i remember um an old lecturer of mine david dunster talking about the um protestant um uh kind of puritanical tendency within uk architecture <laughs> and i think that's still very powerful um and um you know for during a lot of fats kind of time we were very deliberately pushing at what the limits of that would be to kind of expose the sort of mechanisms of of control that exists within the discipline of architecture mm-hmm. so now i uh, you know i find exploring um architectural style uh to be rather than superficial i find it a very profound thing to be doing and i really you know i'm deeply interested in it and i saw i did i hear i heard a lecture by alan powers and he was talking about neo geo neo georgian as possibly the most derided style of architecture and um and that's something that sort of exists you know it's sort of been endless returns endless neo geos mm. and um and we did a house, we were designing a house recently, and we thought, well, we should have a go at Neo Geo, because that, <laughs> that might be the last stylistic bastion to um, to break down, because, uh, you know, no one has a good word to say for that. But, you know, I find that that kind of thing really interesting. And like, what is it about it that's so problematic? Um, and why does it persistently exist? And why does it persistently return? And why do architects persistently dislike it? Yeah. Yeah. And yet, and yet, but I, so I'm, I'm really, yeah, this idea around the austerity, I suppose, the austere aesthetics of, of the, as you put it, the, the, the puritanical way that architecture has developed must be one of the reasons why it remains a marginal practice in relation to things like housing production. Uh, I mean, yes, po- there's policy, of course, and that it, it seems to me too to be absolutely central to, to to the issue of housing. But there is also the fact that volume house builders kind of do housing that people like. I mean, that's a tricky one, isn't it? That's a tricky one, that because because um, it looks kind of housey when you buy a house by you know Persimmon, it looks kind of housey, and people yeah. want a house that looks kind of housey, and that includes little bits of ornament and little bits of frivolity, um, uh, you know, tiny bits, and sometimes not very much at all, yeah. but sometimes a lot, um, you know, they're like the kind of footballers' suburbia kind of stuff, um, neo palatial Las Vegan Georgian Tudor Beetham with a helipad kind of stuff. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I don't have... I, I'm aware that in these um, questions around, um, say, you know, contemporary suburban housing, whatever, uh, that there's many traps, one of which is, you know, just simply to be snobby about different people's tastes. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I think, I think in a way that's a slightly different question well i'd like to think it's a slightly different question um and at the same time and i'm not entirely convinced that you know um that is exactly what people want and but my 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 sort of purpose is not to say oh i don't think they like that they'd be much more excited if you showed them a book on your noughts um 
Danish housing schemes, and then they're, then they'd really get off on that. It's not really that's not really quite m- my mission. Um, and I, you know, I'm, I'm all for kind of stylistic variety, as I said. So you know, kind of more likely to enjoy um, stick-on porches than most architects. <laughs> um, that doesn't really uh, offend me, but I think it's also important to to question how genuinely popular that is. It's a bit like sort of Adorno saying, it's nothing wrong with popular culture. I just wish it was popular. You know, it's like, is it really popular culture or is it simply what is available at any one time? Um, and, you know, who who's, who's making it? And I suppose that's why, you know, I'm quite interested in uh, writers like Colin Watts, who are who are people who do look for genuinely popular forms of housing. What happens when housing escapes either in his side the sort of managerial bureaucracy of you know welfare state housing of the post-war era, um, or that which is sort of supplied to it by the market. So I think there's a danger in simply saying because it's the market that's providing it, therefore it must be popular and right. I don't I think that, that's too easy an assumption. Yeah. And something that we should definitely um want to unpack a lot more. And the reason it's as yeah. I've tried to say, the reason it is how it is is mostly to do with a whole series of kind of forces, economic forces in relation to kind of land availability and planning and on that level. Um what what you get is what comes out of that process. I suppose what I'm interested in is like what happens if you try to change that, and what might you want to do instead, and why might you want to do that, and and that might be a question someone asks is what's wrong with that all of that stuff, and and I suppose my answer to that would be well you know that to do with you know other questions to do with how society is organised to do with kind of ecological questions to do with like you know just generally sort of driving headlong into a kind of enormous crisis um and it's not really about personal taste Uh, and and therefore you know when i went to poundbury i wasn't you know a bit to poundbury i quite like bits of poundbury and i get quite you know i'm like okay that's completely nuts but that's fine with me if it's if someone wants to make a kind of miniature version of the center of st petersburg in a dorset field then go for it (laughs) that's all right with me I don't have, you know, I mean, some bits of the pound were totally nuts. And I think, yeah. you know, like there's a bit that Ben, ben Treath has done, the later bits. There's a bit which is like Shad Thames, which is, um, and it, and it's basically retirement homes. So we've got a kind of situation where someone's building essentially replicas of commercial wharf buildings that were later turned into sort of hipster lots. Um, and then building versions of that from scratch as elderly people's housing, and that's that's quite brain frying, really, as a concept as to why you might do that. The dinner parties must be insane. They probably end up <laughs> thumping, thumping late nineties house music. Let's hope so. Like the ketamine, <laughs> you know, ketamine consumption in Poundry through the roof, and no one knows why. <laughs> and it's all down to the architecture. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 I want to get onto the I want to get onto the Davidson Prize, and I thought maybe the I, I I'm really interested. So I've seen you give a paper actually at a conference. I can't remember when it was five or ten five or so years ago. Yeah, on plotlands on on um, Colin Ward's discussions around plotlands and your own engagement, which are amazing. Um, and and I think what for me and what 
I've always found so uh, enticing about Colin Ward's stuff is this idea of agency and individuality being applied in the case of Plotlands, for example, to an absolutely uniform unit. And then over time, this kind of emergence of individuality. And you see that very much in, in House for Essex, this idea of creating something that is individuated. Is this something to do with your or, or a perspective about challenging totalizing visions that the problem of modernity was it was a totalizing vision. The problem of um, build back better, build back beautiful or whatever it was called is that it's another totalizing vision. And they're trying to kind of answer the problem of totalizing visions by doing more totalizing, you know, mm. hegemonic, you know, it, it's the institution trying to apply globally uh, a solution that doesn't have a real, that, and what we need to be doing is finding kind of uh, enabling people's voices in our settlements. And is that is that kind of what House for Essex, a House for Essex does? And is that kind of part of its intention and part of your kind of practice? Uh, I am interested in that for sure. Um, and both, yeah, in, in the sense that, you know, communities become empowered to, mm -hmm. to um, explore and enable um, their own environment. Mm. Um, and I think that is really important. And that does stem from a number of things, but certainly kind of Colin Ward. Um, and as you suggest, it feeds into um, the Davidson Prize, which is a yeah. way of trying to take some of those ideas of individual freedom um, and a certain kind of open-endedness that housing is a process and a temporal thing rather than a purely spatial thing. Um, you know, it changes over time. People change over time. People's needs change over time. And how you might make housing that can kind of reflects that and accommodates different tastes and different sort of lifestyles, I suppose. Mm. Um, so uh, that's very much derived from a kind of you know a, a research period looking at forms of quite experimental dweller control housing. Plotlands being one example of it. Um, but I think Jameson Prize is an attempt to sort of fuse that with something which also then has a kind of a, another sort of, sort of collective governance structure. So we were quite interested in that proposal, which I did, um, or my practice did, with a number of different people. So we worked with an artist, Verity Jane Keefe, who's done a lot of work looking at um, owner adaptation and how houses have changed over time, uh, particularly in... Um, Barking and Dagenham, um, where she was an artist in residence. Uh, she's an exhibition at ROBA, um, which explored the way that those houses have changed over time. Um, we worked with um, Quality of Life um, Foundation, which was set up by Sadie Morgan, um, which is about trying to understand, you know, what's successful in housing schemes, how they how they work, and how you might start to actually sort of quantify that. Um, and then Joseph Henry, who uh, works at the GLA. Um, and Joseph developed a sort of governance structure for how that kind of housing might happen. Like, uh, and what we developed was an idea of a sort of rental self-build or rental community build model. Um, and that therefore you'd have sort of long-term uh, 
long-term investment and long-term security in your rental model. You could adapt and change your house. It was run by, you know, a, a trust um, that's part of a housing association that works with the local authority that initially owns the land. So there's a whole um, structure of how that housing might happen mm-hmm. and then how it might work over time. Um, and so that's sort of the two things, really, the idea of how the housing could become could be quite simple, but allow huge diversity of expression. And then how that might actually enable people to live in it over time, sort of work, work together. So in that sense, the stylistic eclecticism and an idea of a relationship between the sort of collective and the individual um, were the two really important kind of parts of that scheme. I think um, in a house for Essex, it's different. I mean, it's hard to argue, uh, as much as I love that project and, and love working on it, hard to argue that, you know, a, a kind of single holiday home um, um, designed, you know, with an artist, um, quite a sort of one-off bespoke situation, has too many wider kind of implications in terms of, you know, housing and settlements and stuff like that. Well, I do think that project has, and because obviously it's in Essex and about Essex and Grayson Perry um, and myself are both from Essex, is it does it does explore, I think, genuinely qualities of that place um, and qualities of Essexness, um, some of which is, you know, um, some of which is obvious, I think. You know, like people would say, oh, like, you know, that house has got huge amounts of kind of, it's hugely extrovert. It's kind of got a certain amount of bling to it. It's kind of like, um, you know, has a it it flirts with a certain kind of ethics vulgarity, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, and other ways, it sort of relates to ethics probably in, in slightly subtler ways, which are sort of you know because it's a very highly um, raw and and sort of expressive object. It might might be easy to miss some of the other ways that it. I I think it's kind of embedded in that place, but. I do think it has a certain kind of Essexness about it. And Essex was, you know, a place which had huge amounts of kind of plotland communities for various reasons, kind of London overspill, um, uh, and the way that Essex sort of developed in the 20th century, um, you know, is, is quite relevant in relation to some of the ideas in the house for Essex and, um, you know, in the storyline of the character that Grayson created for it, there's a sort of journey through from a sort of plot and community through the new town of Basildon and then the kind of Thatcherite new town of Southwood and Ferris um, and then various other places that that person lives and then you end up in North Essex, which is a sort of agricultural, slightly more affluent bit of Essex. Um and so, yeah, I think, you know, it, it, there's lots of those ideas that are sort of present in there in as much as it is ultimately a sort of single, um, rather unique yeah. house. The, um, I want to come back to the the idea of uh, the, the um, co-living co- in the countryside, this project, because I think it's a really, I mean, you won the prize in 2022 and you're a judge this year, but it seems to me in what you've been saying that there's a kind of, standing back in a way of the architect and the taste of the architect the the architect needs to stand down a bit and 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 foreground other people other creative people in the case of um co-living in the countryside verity keith and and joseph henry um and your other collaborators but also that there's this idea of standing back to 
in some cases, slightly what might be seen as slightly, um, I, I, the word tasteless, but I don't mean them tasteless. I mean sort of um, popular versions of what taste is. And I think that's a really interesting thing. How does an architect operate in that field? How do you how do you go about standing down when we've spent so much of our education, so much of our kind of idea of what it is to be an architect is to be the big man? Hmm. Um, I think useful probably in this sense to invoke um, uh, Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown, hmm. um, who are two you know very influential thinkers on on fat and, and on me still um and um you know that that their idea that really learning to like things is quite important you know a lot of architectural education and i don't need to be down on architectural education which i think is kind of remarkable and I, you know i love being involved in it but i do think historically one of the effects of it is to is to sort of limit what you like mm-hmm. in quite an amazingly efficient way actually you, know, you get all sorts of people arriving in architectural education, and then within about two years, everyone's massively into the thermal baths at Valves. And they think, that's quite weird, isn't it? Why is everyone like that? I mean, is it objectively just the pinnacle, or is there something, you know, uh, kind of just amazing about the way that people's taste starts to sort of coalesce around certain, you know, very specific things? Um I've been. I feel like I've been on the opposite journey. I, I'm. I'm trying to like more things, <laughs> and I think that would help. Um, generally, you know, I really. Uh, I. I find stylistic partisanship in architecture just completely baffling. Like people who are campaigning vigorously for the um, for saving a ruthless car park, but who will cheer when you know the Terry Fowell building from the eighties is up for you know demolition and I'm like I just don't understand I, I I literally have a sort of cognitive problem with how you could want buildings that you don't like to be demolished <laughs> I mean first of all I probably like first of all I like both you know I, I like I love a lot of ruthless buildings and I love a lot of postmodernist buildings and I don't mean to be wet I mean there's a lot of buildings I really dislike but none of them I want really to be demolished I have to say so I find that sort of, yeah, that partisanship pretty bewildering. Um, and I'm much more into the opposite of that, which is a kind of stylistic kind of variety. I like quite rich stuff in architecture. I like weird stuff. I like things that are sort of oddly outside of very obvious traditions, things that sort of fall outside of the proper and the normal and the right. <laughs> Um, I'm drawn to quite a lot of, I guess, historic architecture for that reason, because quite a lot of it was produced in ways that architecture isn't now, which probably comes back to the nub of your question. That when architecture was produced, not by, you know, through professional models and, um, you know, contractors and architects and QSs, but produced in much more sort of... uh, Kind of organic ways, I suppose that you know, you, you know, different people would be designing different bits, or like bits of it would be built without anyone designing it at all, um, and then someone come along and change a bit of it later and add something else to it, and then something else. To it. And I find that really fascinating, and I like the kind of richness that comes out of that, mm. um, uh, you know. And and I think my tastes have become much more kind of eclectic and Catholic as well. You know, I mean, I'm 
uh, you know, and I've always loved kind of classical architecture, um, you know, and it's, you know, kind of whether that sort of, you know, English classicism and the kind of Baroque of Baltimore or later Soane and people like that. But now I like lots of sort of slightly strange in-between periods as well. And, you know, I really like the work of Raymond Eris, for example, who's like a ton of post-war classicist in in the UK, who made incredibly weird, strange, rather wonderful buildings which sort of evade easy categorization. He was sort of following a fairly sort of odd trajectory of his own. Um, and I think architecture does have a tendency to kind of remove a lot of that and sort of create a kind of taste culture of its own, which is interested in you know, a fairly narrow sort of stylistic range and a fairly sort of narrow definition of what good architecture is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't really subscribe to that. Because no. um, but- I saw these wonderful images on your on your Instagram or Twitter from your recent visit to Glasgow, and you, you picked out this beautiful window, which was a Baroque, Glaswegian mercantile Baroque, idecule within an idecule. Yeah. And I thought, for me, I mean, it was it is amazing, and it, it is so ballsy, actually. <laughs> I mean, the nuts on on the architect is unbelievable, but it was also based in a really solid understanding of what game they were playing. And I do wonder whether to be eclectic, effectively, both in what you appreciate and and in what you then produce, you actually need to know this stuff. And that's complicated. And that's perhaps where the kind of um, Driech kind of utilitarian forms of architecture that 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 we call modernism now, but are nothing really of the sort. They're just kind of like sheds with, um, is it, that's why that's the answer. Because actually the job of learning this is so complex. Um, I don't know. Do you, I mean, how, how 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 have you kind of sort of? I suppose how do we teach this? I suppose is the question. Like, where people yeah. know about this. <laughs> I think there's lots of interesting things there. Um, uh, I in in terms of um, well, sometimes interesting things happen because people sort of fail, but fail kind of well <laughs> so you know quite a lot of interesting buildings often because someone's trying to do something and they sort of end up doing something else yeah. um and yeah i guess you know to to sort of practice you know a, a really highly refined form of mannerism you've got to have understood or, or absorbed very effectively the kind of rules of classicism um i guess but I, you know, I think you know. Also, actually, if you look at kind of history of architecture, that's not always the case. You know, I mean, that sort of artisan mannerism, you know, seventeenth century, whatever, where people are sort of badly copying stuff, and then badly, slightly badly copying stuff, they're producing something quite unusual. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know whether that um, supreme sort of control is quite so critical, actually. Um, uh, for me, and and yeah, there are examples of that, but there also are examples of something different, which is where um, you know the, the the rules haven't been quite learned properly, and that produces something quite interesting as well. I mean, I think you know, there, it's not to say that there are sort of bad bits of architecture in a way that exists. Certainly, there are, but you know, the worst kinds of architecture, I guess, for me, are the bits that you know. Uh, where, you know, just a sort of overwhelming cynicism is in place and a kind of execution of 
of you know, very soulless execution of completely understood simple sorts of logics is probably the stuff I'm least interested in. Yeah. Um, and I don't, again, I don't think everything has to be super rich either. I mean, I'm drawn to those bits that are, but you know, um, they're obviously, you know, I don't feel like every every building has to be some extraordinary sort of piece of work in its own right. You can just have you know, some ordinary okay stuff too. But I think my eye and my taste is always drawn to things which are slightly sort of marginal and slightly kind of something a little odd has crept in around the edges, whatever that is, you know, whatever the sort of influence is or the position or, you know, the geographic place, you know, I quite like you find a building which sort of doesn't quite belong where it is. Mm. Um, for various reasons, that 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 creates a kind of interest. In terms of how you teach it, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I think a lot about this, obviously, and I think that the tension in a lot of architectural education, I guess, is between a desire to address a sort of subject area and a need to teach a kind of formal skill-based set of understandings. You know, and I think within current architectural education, the the emphasis is certainly at postgrad level is often on okay, well we're going to look this year at and there's a big theme. But essentially, what you're hoping to get out of that is twelve or fifteen or twenty, you know, really skillful projects. Um, and so the and the reason I say that, I suppose, is that the formal question isn't discussed very much. <laughs> I think. I think it should be discussed much more, and I talk about it quite a lot. I mean, one of the things about this conversation I quite like is like, you know, actually talking about kind of formal aspects of architecture, I think, is really important. I don't think it's trivial and we should talk, be talking about, you know, um, social concerns exclusively. I think what architects do is make things, and those things need to be talked about and discussed and, and explored as formal objects, because that's how um, we make them. Uh, so, but I think there's, there, there probably is a, a bias away from that now, I think, and, and to talk about, you know, the condition in which we design rather than the design. Yeah. I think that's a brilliant point to finish on. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Ambrose. Good in every way, every day. Thanks to Charles for spending time speaking with me and with such clarity. Please see the podcast description for more links to Charles's practice and catalogue, present and back, and to the various bits on the Davidson Prize scheme too, and material he's presented around that. Do share this episode, of course, and thanks for listening. Cheers. <laughs>